The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You are a part of something so much bigger than you could possibly imagine as Christians. Um, you know, you, don't, you may not realize this, depending on how long you've been around church, but just even by nature of being at this church, you are part of a subcosm of Christianity as a whole. You are sort of in what um, Mark Driscoll has referred to as the zip code in Christianity. So if Christianity was America, um, within America you have states, within states you have counties, within counties you have cities, within cities you have zip codes. Um, And if you take Christianity and you were to parse out all the different tribes you could call them, or all the different um, segments or brands or whatever of Christianity, we sort of fit in one little area of that. Um, and it's actually interesting, if you ever are bored, um, get on Google and, and, and look for some kind of a family tree of churches and, and see if you can trace back um, where you came from all the way back to the early church. It's actually fascinating. See, so for most of the church up to about 1500, um, there was about two brands of Christianity, an Eastern one, and then the Roman Catholic one, primarily. Um, And then around the 1500s, something happened called the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther basically um, challenged the authority of the church over the scriptures and said that scripture should have absolute authority and that we are saved by faith alone, um, justified by faith alone. And when that happened, you'll, you'll see in this thing, if you ever Google it, I should have brought a picture. The church just explodes into hundreds and thousands of different denominations and styles and brands and all kinds of different places, everything from um, Lutheran to Wesleyan um, to uh, Calvinist to all kinds of different. And out of that come denominations, and out of each denomination comes each denomination. It's amazing to the point now where I don't even know if you could possibly learn all of the different kinds um, of Christianity. Now, the tradition that I've come out of and the tradition that this church has come out of is something called non-denominational. And non-denominational is kind of funny because it's, it's kind of been this effort to not be connected to anything. Um, and in doing that, it's kind of become its own thing. <laughs> like non-denominational has kind of become its own brand of church. Oh, you go to non-denominational church. Well, that's probably kind of charismatic worship and not really connected to a denomination, maybe a little bit less traditional. So in trying to escape that, We've kind of become our own thing. Uh, I grew up in a church of about 40 people that was non-denominational. I had this funny idea when I was a kid that we were the only Christians in the world. <laughs> um, and I say that seriously. I, I really thought that we were like the only ones that got it right. And all the other churches in the valley and all the other churches in the area were screwballs. Um, and and this, this idea was really crippling to me as a kid because it really made me think that Christianity was just the 40 goofy people that I hung out with every week uh, and that there couldn't possibly be anything bigger than that. So the idea of hitching my wagon to these 40 people for the rest of my life and being only hanging out with them, and I love those people, don't get me wrong, um, uh, you know, was kind of depressing for a kid. Why am I talking about all this? I'm talking about all this because I, I think that sometimes in the non-denominational universe, we've kind of forgotten the importance of being linked back to something bigger than ourselves, okay? It's kind of an unintentional, uh, something that unintentionally happened, I think, from the Reformation, and that that everyone is trying to find their own little niche in Christianity to create their own little brand and forgetting the fact that we are actually part of something much bigger, much bigger than what we, we might immediately be connected to. We're all connected. We're all the church here. 
Okay, so if we came out of a, if we're a fellowship church that has roots in Calvary Chapel and Calvary Chapel came out of Foursquare and Foursquare came out of Assemblies of God and Assemblies of God actually was a Wesleyan branch and Wesley ultimately came out of the Reformation and, and, and through that and the Reformation was tied back to Catholicism which brings you all the way back to the early church. Uh, ultimately, although we have all kinds of different brands within Christianity, we are one church and we are one kingdom. And why I think that's really important for us to understand is we start to think in tunnel vision that the kingdom of God is just what's in front of us. The kingdom of God is much bigger than the six or 700 people that gather here at Heritage every week. The kingdom of God is much bigger than the however many it is, 20,000 or so Christians in the valley. The, the kingdom of God is bigger than however many Christians are in Oregon. The kingdom of God is bigger than, than the United States and the Christians in the United States. The kingdom of God is bigger than Christians. You are attached to something, connected to something so much bigger than yourself. And one of the biggest detriments I think that we've done in Christianity and evangelicalism is we've made Christianity a singular thing. It's about me and what I do with the Lord. And, and we've lost the connection to something much bigger. If you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 11. And I just want to show you something really quick by way of intro. Hebrews chapter 11. I think this is exactly what the author of Hebrews was trying to communicate in his epistle. Now, while you're turning there, some context. Hebrews chapter 11 is referred to uh, by most Christians as the hall of faith. It's really uh, this list uh, the author is giving of all of these different saints in the Old Testament that were saved according to their faith. And the, the author's really just trying to paint this picture um, that it's always been faith that saved us. It always will be faith that saved us. Uh, and it's a faith in God's faithfulness. But it's really interesting. I just picked up on this the other day as I was reading this. In verse 10 of chapter 11, as he's talking about Abraham, actually pick it up in uh, verse 9. About Abraham, he says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Abraham, he was called to, be, uh, to leave his hometown, his homeland and Ur, and to go and to seek out this new land, this new place that God was calling him to go to. Verse 10, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Skip down to verse 16. But as it is, they desire, who's they? The, the, the Christians, the, the, those that have believed, I'm sorry, in this chapter. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. A heavenly country. What the author is trying to get at here is that what made these saints in the Old Testament willing and able to leave their, their land in Abraham's case, or what made Moses, for instance, willing to leave Egypt and the affluence that he had there, what made these men and these women able to leave everything for their faith was that they were seeing something bigger and better on the horizon. And this is by no means just talking about Abraham going to Canaan. This is saying Abraham was able to leave his homeland because he saw something, a city, a place that was bigger and better than he could possibly have imagined. Skip down to verse 40 in chapter 11. It says, Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And you're familiar with this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, 
what the, he, what the author of Hebrews is climaxing here is he said, okay, now that you've thought about all of these saints that were willing to give up their life for something bigger and something better and something greater, realize that you are connected to those saints. He's essentially saying that because you have this cloud of witnesses, all of these believers who have lived for thousands of years by faith, serving the same God, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, because you are part of something bigger than yourself, run your race and run it well. You're big. You're part of something big. You're part of something much bigger than your personal little little relationship with God. You are part of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of faith racers that have run it before you. You're connected to something much bigger than yourself. And that's essentially what I'm going to try to point out uh, tonight as we we talk about the subject of the kingdom of God. Okay? Okay. the kingdom, let me just say by way of preface here, okay, the kingdom is a word that gets thrown around all the time in Christianity. It's kind of a popular word pro- probably because it's in the Bible a lot. Um, I think most of us, I actually did some experiments this week. I just asked people like deer in headlights moments when they weren't expecting it. Like, hey, what's the kingdom of God? <laughs> really funny. I actually see people, you know, kind of go, oh, I, I have to think about that, you know. Um, I don't know that it's something that we have a ton of clarity on in the church. It's, it's something that we hear a lot. Um, we've heard it misused a lot. The Jehovah's Witnesses really like that word, and they've got a funny idea about what it is. Um, some of the, our Pentecostal brothers uh, have ideas about what the kingdom is that, that may be a little bit askew. Uh, what I want to do tonight, and kind of our trajectory for tonight, is, is I want to start by defining the kingdom of God. And then once we define the kingdom of God, I want to ask the question, what is the church's connection to the kingdom of God? Okay, what is the church's connection to the kingdom of God? Because the purpose of this series, if you remember, is to try to define what the church is defined as in the New Testament. And one of the things that it's defined as is a kingdom. Okay, is a kingdom. So let's, let's kind of walk through it. Now, I gave you guys an outline, so you should be able to kind of follow along there. Um, not quite to the outline yet, but uh, listen to what Gordon Fee said, just in terms of why we should study the kingdom. Gordon Fee said this. He said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything. If you miss the kingdom of God, you are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is a greatest, a greatest failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Uh, I find that statement interesting because he's essentially saying that if you, get, if you take Jesus and you don't get the kingdom, you're actually missing Jesus. That Jesus and the kingdom come together. They come as a package. They come as one. Okay, you don't get the kingdom without the king, and you don't get the king without the kingdom. Okay, we talk a lot about Jesus in evangelical circles. We don't talk a lot about the kingdom. And Jesus came bringing the kingdom. He came talking about the kingdom. He came proclaiming the kingdom. Uh, it's a super important part um, of, of, of being Christians within the church. Um, in the New Testament, the kingdom comes up uh, 139 times. Okay, and I'm not just talking about the word kingdom. I'm talking about this concept that Jesus came preaching and bringing in the New Testament 139 times, and almost all of those times were out of Jesus' mouth directly. This was the main thing that he came preaching about. Okay, and I feel like some of the newer scholars are starting to catch on to this now uh, and bring it to our attention that, man, the, the crux of the New Testament really in, in Jesus' words is this idea of a kingdom of God. 
okay? It's really an important thing. It's not only in the New Testament, it's all throughout the Old Testament. You can't escape the idea of kingdom in the Old Testament. Israel was a kingdom. Um, there's constant uh, talk and, and, and illustration of world kingdoms all throughout the Old Testament. There's kings in the Old Testament, not to mention that Jesus came through not the line of Aaron, which would make him um, a priest, although he is. He came through the line of Judah, the king. He came as a king. He came to bring his kingdom, and it's important that we understand what that is. Now, let me just say, for those of you that have faithfully come on these Wednesday nights, um, we've already talked about the kingdom not more than like three months ago. Jeremy did an awesome biblical theology of kingdom, and he traced it all the way through the Bible. And so I'm not going to get into the Old Testament stuff, and I would encourage you guys to hop on uh, our website, and if you dare, try to find the, web, find a, try to find the, the teaching. It's only a few months back, um, and listen to that. But what we're going we're gonna to focus on tonight is more about the kingdom uh, in the New Testament, the kingdom and the church. So let's start by defining the kingdom of God, okay? Defining the kingdom of God. Um, finding the kingdom of God is tricky. Uh, it's tricky because you're talking about something that's beyond your dimension. Does that make sense? You're talking about something like you're trying to explain to a blind person who's never seen what a sunset would look like. Can you imagine trying to do that? Um, hey, it's yellow. Uh, what's yellow? Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's bright. Okay, what's bright? Um, all right, so when we're trying to understand things that are outside of our pay grade, outside of our dimension, um, we kind of need to realize that we're operating at a deficit. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he said it this way. He said, many of our questions are from God's point of view, rather like someone asking, is yellow square or round? Or how many hours are there? Uh, there's a typo. How many hours are there in a mile? <laughs> okay, so we're asking the question, what is the kingdom? It's a little bit tricky uh, because we're talking about things that we can't really fully comprehend, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't understand them. Jesus seemed to think that we could understand the kingdom. He seemed to think it was something we should understand and something that we should run after. So we're, we're going to do our best to describe it. I think the best thing I can do is, is start by saying, what is the kingdom not? Okay, and you'll see this on your notes. What is the kingdom not? Sometimes the best way to define something is to say what it isn't. So three things really quick on what the kingdom is not. The first thing that the kingdom is not is the kingdom is not spiritual versus physical. It's not spiritual versus physical. Some people think, because Jesus synonymously used kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, um, that kingdom of heaven means that anything spiritual is of God and anything physical is not of God. Okay, let me just say, that's, that's not true. That is not true. This is thinking that traces all the way back to Plato in the 4th century BC. It's called Platonic thought. And Plato introduced this idea that saturated the Greek world, um, that, that basically physical things didn't matter. And spiritual things were not connected to physical things. So in the Greco-Roman world, you, had, uh, you could basically do whatever you wanted in your physicality because it didn't affect your soul in any way. Okay, so you could go have temple prostitutes. You could go do whatever. This is exactly what Paul was preaching against in the book of Corinthians. Uh, it was this Greek thought that spiritual is good and physical is evil. So do whatever you want to your physicality because it doesn't really matter. And Jesus came preaching the exact opposite thing. He said your physicality and your spirituality, they are connected. Okay, they're connected. And Paul picked up that same idea in the New Testament. He said, when you join yourself to a prostitute, you're literally joining Jesus to that prostitute. There's a connection between your physical and your spiritual. Your spiritual is played out through your physical. The Gnostics, if you guys ever heard of the Gnostics, they were the first century uh, heretics in Christianity. They picked up the same thinking and preached the same ideas. This is what Paul was preaching against constantly in his epistles. 
The Gnostics believe the same thing, that spiritual is good and physical is evil. Okay? That is not Christianity. There is a unique connection that cannot be split between the physical universe and the supernatural, the spiritual universe, and God sees them as connected. God works in them. God is part of them. God is present in the physical and in the spiritual. Uh, I love this quote by uh, N.D. Wilson. He says, If God wanted a spiritual kingdom, he could have saved himself a huge amount of work by just skipping Christmas. Yeah, that's kind of a funny quote, if you're catching that. In other words, if, if God didn't want a physical universe, he wouldn't have become a man, inhabited a physical body, walked around uh, on actual feet for 33 years and died a physical death to, reserve a, to, to redeem a physical people and establish a physical kingdom on a physical earth. Okay, this whole idea that uh, we're all going to float around in a cloud forever is just not true. Okay, the kingdom of God is just as physical as it is spiritual. Okay, you cannot over-separate it, and you're wise to not do that. Now, the second thing the kingdom of God is not is it is not a cosmic power struggle in deadlock. Okay, let me, I made a little illustration for you guys that, that is real tacky looking, but it gets the point across, okay? Um, so here's how I want you to think about the kingdom. The kingdom is a subcosm where God's rule or God's reign is seen or manifest in one space, okay? So... God is, okay, we all know this, right? God is sovereign over all, right? God is not limited to the blue, okay? Um, God has chosen to limit himself to the blue for his purposes, but God is by no means limited to the blue. God's kingdom is wherever God is reigning, okay? And outside of that, God is ultimately sovereign, but he has created the red, which is where we live, bummer, okay, where Satan has been permitted a temporary and earthly reign. Okay, so the kingdom of God is wherever God is reigning. The kingdom of God is wherever God is made king. Um, and the kingdom of God is ultimately bigger than just one or two things. Okay, so this idea of yin and yang, have you guys heard that in Eastern religion, that there's this balance in the universe, that evil and good are, are equal and they're sort of coexisting and they, they have to keep each other in check. It's like the Star Wars force thing, the good and the evil. Okay, this is not Christianity. This is not how it works. God is sovereign. God is ultimately powerful. God is supreme. And he is allowing Satan for his purposes to reign temporarily. And he's allowing death to happen. And he's allowing um, this world to be fallen for a season. But his sovereignty is over all. But the kingdom of God is where God is, is reigning. Okay? Uh, the third thing that the kingdom is not. The third thing the kingdom is not is the kingdom is not just the church, just heaven, or just the future. Okay, you'll notice in this illustration that I tried to point out that the kingdom of God actually um, contains within it multiple things. Some people think the kingdom of God is just the church. Oh, that's just synonymous for the church. So when you say kingdom of God is the church, no, that's not true. The church is in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is bigger than the church. Okay, we think too small. We think that everything in the Bible is about us. <laughs> we think everything in the Bible is culminated and fulfilled in the church. That's actually not true. If it's culminated and fulfilled in anything, it's Christ. The kingdom of God is a larger than we can possibly understand. Within the kingdom of God is angels. Within the kingdom of God is heaven. It's life. It's true Israel. It's the church. It's all of these things that are under the reign of God. That's what the kingdom is. And if you look at the opposite of those things... 
In Satan's permitted earthly reign, you see demons and you see the, the, the fallen physical universe. You see uh, death. You see the apostate of Israel, fallen humanity, suffering. These are things that are, that are under the God of this age's rule. Okay, So that's essentially uh, what, what the kingdom is. Now, I want to point out something really quick. Beware of reductionist thinking when you think about things like the kingdom of God. Okay, reductionist means that I'm, I'm going to take something and I'm going to reduce it really small. This is like tweeting, okay? If I think of one word to embody reductionism, it's tweeting, okay? I'm going to reduce everything down to the smallest point possible. Now, that's really helpful because it makes things a little more bite-sized, but the problem with that is, is don't ever make things more simple than they are, okay? Don't ever make things, if, if something it can't be contained in 20 figures or 100 figures, don't say it in that. The problem is, is that the kingdom of God cannot be contained in one sentence or one picture or one illustration. And the same is true with the church, okay? And that's why we're doing this series. Just to try to kind of bring this whole series back together. We, we, we've, we looked at six different dimensions of the church. And the reason that we did that is because the church cannot be described or understand by only one dimension. It can't. Jesus didn't just say the church was a kingdom, and he didn't just say the church was a bride, and he didn't just say the church was a vine, and he didn't just say the church was an army, and he didn't just say the church was any. He said the church is all of those things because this is a complex doctrine. I thought of an illustration for this. My daughter has this cool little game. Uh, it's these little plastic things that are clear. Um, and the game is, is that you, you have these, these pictures of these shapes, and you have to try to stack these clear things up with these different pictures in order to create a more full picture. Now, just one on its own looks like that, right? It's just clear, and it's got a little bit uh, of color on there, okay? And you have to stack them up in order in order to create a more full picture. And you can see how on their own they're pretty simple, but when you start to stack them up, they create a unique and full picture. Okay, now this is often how God speaks through the scriptures. We're not just the bride. We are the bride, yes. And we're the vine. Okay, we're, we're all of these things. The church is all these things. The kingdom of God is not just the church. When you stack all of these things on top of each other, what you get is you get a more full, a more 3D picture of what some of these truths are. And I've actually been really encouraged by this series because it's made me realize just how robust the church is. This thing that we're part of, this bride of Christ, is huge. And it's part of an even more huge thing called the kingdom of God. And we're part of that. This is exciting. This is really, really cool. And just beware of reducing that down to things that are, are, are too simple. Okay, so what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Um, I kind of already gave it away, but the kingdom of God uh, is essentially this. The kingdom of God is the manifest reign of God. Wherever God is reigning, he is the king. Wherever God, wherever God is the king, that is the kingdom. Wherever God is placed as the king, that is the kingdom. So it's the, it's the kingdom of God is, is God's reign made manifest. I like how uh, Rick Warren put it, and we've used this quote a few times, but I, I just think it doesn't get any better. So he says this, if Jesus is in heaven, then the kingdom of God is in heaven. If Jesus is king reigning on earth, then the kingdom uh, of, of heaven is on earth. If Jesus is king in my heart, then the kingdom of God is in me. So uh, back to this illustration, the kingdom of God is not so much about a physical place as much as it is a, a place that God is reigning. Okay, so if, if Christ is reigning in your heart, your heart now has become the kingdom of God. If your heart is at war with God, your heart is not 
the kingdom of God. If heaven is ruled, which it is, by God and his, and his reign is manifest in heaven, then heaven is the kingdom of God. Okay, is that making, kind of making sense? So that's, that's kind of a definition, a working definition of the kingdom. Now I want to look really quick. What I did is this week, I, I googled um, all the verses on the kingdom of God in the New Testament. I read all of them, and as I was doing that, I was thinking, let me just pick out themes here. What were the main things that Jesus talked about when he talked about the kingdom of God? And what I realized was, is that there was four main things. Okay, now I'm not trying to reduce this. I'm not trying to force this into a grid or something. This is at least four things. You'll see this on your notes. At least four things that the kingdom of God means. When God's kingdom, when his reign is manifest, when his reign is established, there's at least four things that are always present. Okay, what I did was I went through all these verses on the kingdom of God, and I went, wow, every single time the kingdom of God is mentioned, this thing seems to be there. Or whenever the kingdom of God is present, there seems to be one of these four, four things at all times. So what they are, number one, is God's manifest rule. Okay, God's manifest rule, and I'll, I'll give them to you all right away uh, so you can see them all. Um, God's manifest rule, God's manifest presence, God's manifest righteousness, and God's manifest power. Okay, and we'll just go through those real quick, and, and I'm going to show you. We're going to do some Bible turning here because you guys, uh, I don't want you to fall asleep. So grab your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, and we're going to look at the first one, and that is uh, the kingdom of God is God's manifest rule. Matthew chapter 6, this is a really familiar passage to you. Matthew 6, we catch Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, and we're actually going to be studying this um, in a few months on a Sunday morning. So this is where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and, and he says... Pray like this. Now, before I, before I read this, not only is he teaching them how to pray, he's teaching them what's important, and he's teaching them theology, and he's teaching them what they should care about. Okay, He's saying, I want you to pray this way, not just because I don't want you to pray some kind of pattern. He's like, I want you to pray this way because this is what you should care about, and this is what you should ask God to do in you. And listen to what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen to what he says. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that's one of the most intriguing verses when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because what does he mean by your kingdom come? It doesn't mean that, that um, there, there's some kind of a, a giant rock with a city on it that's going to plop down and his kingdom is here. What he's talking about is that your reign may come. That, that, that the reign of God may be established and seen and manifest here on earth like it is where? In heaven. So in heaven, apparently, according to Jesus, in heaven, the kingdom of God is established and manifest. There is no competition in heaven. There is no God allowing anyone else any power in heaven. It's absolute reign. God is reigning absolutely in heaven. And Jesus says what, the way that you should pray is that you want that here. I want what's in heaven to be here. I want the way that you rule and reign in heaven, I want you to rule and reign in that way. So Jesus is not only teaching them how to pray, he's telling them what they should care about. And what they should care about is that God's rule is ruling here. Okay? So the kingdom of God is God's manifest rule. A couple other texts on this. I won't have you turn to these. Um, Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Okay, uh, He intentionally is using the word kingdom here. And what he's telling us is that in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be one that does the will of the Father. In other words, you have to be one who is ruled by the Father. Now, what this is not saying is that you have to do all the rules perfectly to get into the heaven, into, into the kingdom. He's saying that if you have been forgiven by Christ and reborn, then you are now under the rule of the Father. And now you can enter into his kingdom. So my point is simply this. To be in the kingdom of God is to be under the rule of God. Just one more. John 18, 36, Jesus answered. um, He's having this dialogue with Pilate. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. (laughs) Okay? In other words... If this was my kingdom, I would not be in trial right now with Pilate getting ready to be crucified. Because in my kingdom, I rule. Okay? So I think, I think that, that kind of gets my point across. You see this in the Old Testament, right? The kingdom of Israel. Why were they the kingdom of Israel? Because God was ruling them, or was trying. <laughs> he was trying to rule them. It's called the theocracy. God was to be the ruler of Israel. That's the way he designed it. Uh, they were just really bad at letting him rule. Okay, so the first aspect, the first facet of God's reign is that his rule is manifest. The second thing is God's manifest presence. So not only God's manifest rule, but also God's manifest presence. Go to Luke 17, verse 20. Luke 17, 20. This is a really interesting verse. And we're going to get here in probably, what, on Sundays, like 10 years, I think we'll get there. Um, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. It's a good question. Why, when is the kingdom of God going to come, to ask him? He answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Interesting. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, listen to this. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. He's saying the kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. Pharisees, you're missing it. Jesus is the ultimate representation of the kingdom of God. Because he is the presence of God made manifest. Jesus was God become a man. He literally was the kingdom of God walking around on legs. He was a man perfectly submitted to the rule of God. He was a man uh, who was perfectly um, illustrating the presence of God because he was God. He perfectly lived the righteousness of God. He perfectly displayed the power of God. Jesus was the kingdom. He was the perfect illustration of the kingdom. He's standing right in front of the Pharisees, and and they say, hey, when is the kingdom coming? And he's saying, "Uh, it's in the midst of you. It's it's here, okay? It's here. The kingdom is God's manifest presence. It's whenever God is present with his people, and it's not kingdom if God isn't present. It's not kingdom if God isn't there. We see this in Acts chapter 2. When the kingdom comes in Acts, what does it look like? It looks like Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. It's God's presence dwelling with man. It's God's presence being manifested. We don't have time to go there, but in Revelation 21, at the very end of all the story, at the very end of the Bible, the very end of history, it says that God will set his dwelling place with man. When the kingdom is present, God's presence is present. 
When the kingdom is present, God is there. That's what he was trying to do in the Old Testament through the temple. He said, if you're going to be my kingdom, if you're going to be my people, I'm going to live in the middle of you. (laughs) If I'm going to live in the middle of you, you better get your act together because I am holy and righteous and my presence will kill you. And Jesus did the same thing. He became the temple. He was the incarnation of God's presence right smack dab in the middle of his people. And they missed it. Number three, God's reign is not only his manifest rule, not only his manifest presence, but also his manifest righteousness. His manifest righteousness. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 9, it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay. There is no unrighteousness in the kingdom of God. There is none. No unrighteousness. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's putting the kingdom of God and righteousness together. You can't separate them. You don't get the kingdom of God without righteousness. Now, this verse right here, can we just tell you? That used to terrify me. I remember reading this verse as a kid and thinking, I don't understand. How am I supposed to get in? (laughs) How do I get in? How can I, if I am unrighteous, be in a kingdom that has to be righteous? If God only lets righteous people in, I guess I'm not going to get to go in. I didn't understand the gospel, right? Well, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Get your head around that for a minute. Not only did Jesus go to the cross to make you a righteous person, a man or woman, he went to the cross to make you the righteousness of God. Are you getting that? Like God, his righteousness... You're it if you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no distinction between you and the righteousness of God. And there is no inhibition from you at entering his kingdom because you have been made righteous. Why? Because Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed, covered you. And God doesn't see your screw-ups anymore. I wish I would have known that when I was a little kid. I don't know. I just, apparently I didn't get that memo. Of course I can't get into the kingdom of my own righteousness. Because God's kingdom dwells in righteousness, and I needed his. I needed to be forgiven to get into the kingdom of God. Number four. Number four, not only is his kingdom reign, his manifest rule, his manifest presence, his manifest righteousness, but also his manifest power. Whenever the kingdom of God is present, the power of God is present. Whenever the kingdom of God is present, his power is displayed. When Jesus sent, and we're actually going to talk about this on Sunday, um, Spoiler. Uh, So whenever Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them to do two things. One was to declare the kingdom, and the other was to uh, display the kingdom. How? With power, through healing and casting out demons. He said, wherever you go, my kingdom will be declared, and it will also be displayed. The power of God is going to accompany that. So the kingdom of God is God's reigning through his power. It's when his power is unleashed. It's when his power is working. And when there's no power of the spirit, there's no kingdom. Okay, now I'm not just talking about weird, crazy, miraculous things, um, although that stuff can happen. I'm talking about the power of God to develop you into a transformed, sanctified human. 
talking about the power of God to allow you to live each day uh, and grow you in this Christianity. This, this idea of being a Christian can't happen without the power of God. Jesus lived his entire ministry by the power of God. He went to the cross by the power of God. And the reason he sent the Spirit was so that we could have the power of God because we cannot live without the power of God. There is no kingdom without God's power. And if you're living by your own power, you're not living in the kingdom. Can I, I'll say that again. If you're, not living in the, if you're not living by God's power rather than your own, you are not living in the kingdom. And if someone is telling you how to live in your own strength, that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God's power is manifest and needed and unrestrained. That's the kingdom. So those are four, four aspects of that. Now, I want you to contrast this really quick with the opposite of God's kingdom. So if God's kingdom is God's manifest rule, then the opposite of that is rebellion against God's rule. And what do we see in the world? We see rebellion against God's rule. This idea of being ruled by God is uh, it's detestable to the world, right? So as Christians, we are in the kingdom because we are under God's rule. And the world is not. They don't want anything to do with it. As Christians, we are filled by God's manifest power. And the world, the world is defined by living by their own power. My, my life before being a Christian was defined by my own power, my own strength. And it didn't get me very far. Uh, if the kingdom is manifest... Um, in connection, to, or I'm sorry, in connection to God's manifest presence, so if, if, if Christians um, were living uh, in light of God's presence, the world is disconnected from God's presence. If to be in the kingdom is to be in unity with God's manifest righteousness, opposition to God's righteousness is what the world is defined by. So you can kind of see, see the opposition uh, there in that. Now, I don't have time to get into this. This was just something I kind of made um, to try to explain the next section which is, what does the church have to do with that? <laughs> what does the church have to do with the kingdom of God? And what, what is our place uh, in this, this thing called the kingdom? And if you guys have that chart, and I want to encourage you to take it, I'm going to read it because I don't have the time to, to go through it all. Um, but this part here, okay, that's the part that I want to talk about. What I did on this chart was I tried to say, okay, if these four things, his rule, his power, his presence, his righteousness, if those four things are what his kingdom looks like when he's ruling, when he's in power, when he's present, and when he's righteous, or when his righteousness is there, if those four things are the kingdom, what does that look like traced through all of time? So what does that look like before time? Well, it, it looks like God's unrestrained rule. What does that look like? In creation, well, man ruled by God in the garden. What did that look like at the fall? Well, man chooses self-rule. Okay, so you can kind of work through that. But what I want you to see in this is primarily the fact that the church's function in the kingdom of God is to manifest it. Is that people would see this, okay, God's unrestrained rule, God's unrestrained power, that the world would see in us what it means to be ruled by God, what it means to be in God's absolute reign. And we cannot do that. Listen to this. We cannot do that unless we are attached to the one who did it perfectly. Christ came to live the kingdom life so that we could continue that kingdom life, not singularly, but corporately. 
Okay, I don't want you to miss that. Christ came, listen, Christ came to live the ultimate kingdom life, to illustrate what it looks like for a human being to live under the reign of God. And then he sent us out as the part two, the continuation of what it looks like to live under the reign of God. This is the function of the church in regards to the kingdom of God. We are supposed to be an illustration of what the kingdom looks like. And that's why I put a big arrow here, okay? God is getting back to the final kingdom where he's ruling absolutely, where there is no little red circle, okay? Where it's all God's rule, unrestrained, not just manifest here and manifest there, but completely unrestrained. That's where he's getting us back to. He's getting us back to this, okay? And he's doing it through us because of Christ. That is the purpose of the church, in regards to the kingdom. Now, go one more place and, and we'll start getting a little more practical. So 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 10. I know this is a little bit less sermony and a little bit more classroomy, but this kind of stuff it needs to be explained because it really changes the way that you think. Rick Boya, one of my favorite pastors uh, in this valley, he calls it kingdom think. He says, we need to kingdom think. All of our life, we need to be thinking kingdom. Most of the problems we have as Christians is we're not thinking big enough. We're thinking tunnel vision. We're not thinking kingdom. And that's really just what I'm trying to get us to do tonight is to think kingdom. Okay, so First Peter 2, verse 9, and you're familiar with this. I think we've covered some of this before. It says this, you are, okay, who is you? Us, the church, okay, the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is Peter saying here? Peter is, is telling us what the church's function is. It is to be a people. It is to be the Israel that could never seem to get it together. Not that we're better than Israel, but we have Christ. <laughs> and he made it way better. Okay, the church's function is to be a people that, that is the ultimate community of God. Let me, Tim Keller says it a lot better. Let me just let him say it. Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, what is the relationship of the church to the kingdom? That's our question. So there it is. On the one hand, the church is a pilot plant of the kingdom of God. It is not simply a collection of individuals who are forgiven. It is a royal nation. In other words, a counterculture. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see what family dynamics, business practices, race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, and physical. I like that he uses that word pilot plant. You understand what that is, a pilot plant? He's saying that the church is sort of this little like teaser, this little taste test of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. That when people look at the church, they should see something that goes, wow, that's almost like the way it should be. And when you look at the early church in the book of Acts, it's exactly that. 
It's insane. They were all giving everything that they had to live and give all of their life to one another in perfect love and harmony. I mean, they, they were doing it. And the reason they were doing it was because, as Hebrews told us in the beginning, they were seeing a better city. They were ready to give up what they had for something better. The kingdom of God is God's people displaying king community, where, where we're actually living out what it looks like and what it's going to look like in the kingdom in the end. There's this really interesting concept that um, Tim Keller uh, also brought my attention to uh, in this teaching, and that is that in our modern translations, uh, we use the word you where it, we ne- shouldn't necessarily use it. Uh, so there's a word that the Southerners use uh, called y'all, okay? And y'all is not a real word, but, but it is in the South, right? And y'all is basically you all. It's, it's, it's you all. Um, and, and so you say y'all when you're talking to a group. So if I'm talking to you guys, I'm not just going to say you need to. I would say y'all need to. And you know that I'm talking about all of you, okay? Um, there's, there's not really a lot of good words in our language for that. The King James got it right. If you read the King James and you see the word ye, that's a y'all. It's, hey, you guys, all of you, okay? Um, the problem is in our translations, we put you for all that. So we don't know when the author is actually talking to y'all, and we don't know when the author is talking to you. In other words, we don't know when he's saying, hey, y'all need to do this, and, or hey, you need to do this. Most, most of the time, the majority of the time, like 98% of the time, it's y'all when the Bible gives imperatives. When the Bible says to do something as the church, it's almost always y'all. For instance, <laughs> y'all are a city on the hill. Okay? It's not like, Sam, you're a city on the hill. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for me, right? I'm like, oh, man, I'm a city on a hill. Whew, I got to shine all the time. Like, okay, I'm getting my coffee. Like, be really nice, be really nice, be really nice. You're a city on a hill. Okay, I'm driving, and someone cuts me off, and I instantly want to get mad. No, be nice. You're a city on a hill. That's not what it's saying. <laughs> Y'all are a city on the hill. The way that you interact, the way that you love each other, the way that you have community with each other is the light that people are going to be attracted to. Why? Because it's a pilot plant of the kingdom of God. It's a taste. Salt. There's another one. Y'all be the salt of the earth. It's not a singular imperative. It's a plural imperative. All of you guys, all of you together, collectively, are the salt of the earth. That means that the days where I'm not salty, but salty, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not flavorful, I'm just salty. Uh, those days, well, there's a whole mess of Christians that are still going to make up for that. Together, collectively, we are continuing the work of Christ. Together, collectively, we are the body, not singularly. And that's exactly what the church is meant to do. The, the, impar- the, the implication of a city is that there's a bunch of people, Right? You're a city on a hill. You are a community. You're a bunch of people coexisting, a bunch of different kind of people. It's kingdom language that Jesus was using. He's saying that this is the function of the church. You all do these things together. So we're going to start using that word here. Is that okay? Um, okay. We'll just, just cross out you and your Bible and just change it to y'all. Um, Brent will really like that. So, so the first thing that the church is in regards to the kingdom is that the church is... Um, to model the kingdom, okay? And that's what we just talked about. The second thing is the church is to preach the kingdom. It's to preach the kingdom. Looking back at, at uh, Peter there in verse 9, it says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? So that, okay, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The reason that you are the counterculture, the reason that you are kingdom community, the reason that you are uh, this, this pilot plant is so that you can preach the kingdom of God, that you can declare the kingdom of God. Tim Keller goes on 
In the same article, he says, um, on the other hand, the church is to be an agent of the kingdom. It is not only to model the healing of God's rule, but it is to spread it. Christians go into the world as witnesses of the kingdom. To spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. So this is the function of the church. This is what uh, we do ultimately as Christians. Okay, I have a bunch more, but we're running out. Actually, we're out of time. So I want to give you three quick takeaways Three quick so what's, um, three quick applications to think about, um, and then we'll go have summertime for three months. Um, three things. Number one, see the size of the kingdom. This is like one of the main things I'm hoping you guys get tonight. See the size of the kingdom, okay? See that it's something bigger than you can possibly imagine. You are, something, you are part of something so much bigger than just one individual Christian walk, something so much bigger than heritage, something so much bigger than Medford. You're part of something global and something that's even bigger than time. Like we, have, we are part of a lineage of faith that traces thousands of years back. That was one of the coolest things about going to Israel, man, was like seeing this history and going, I belong to this. I belong to this. Israel is not, we haven't replaced them. They're part of us. They're part of the kingdom. Those saints that lived thousands of years ago that were saved by faith, we're part of them. Abraham and Isaac, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, you're part of this. This lineage of faith, you're grafted in to this tree. You're part of something so much bigger than you can possibly imagine. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says this. Let me see if I can find it. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear, or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's just, you can't even imagine how big this thing is that we're part of as a church. We need to think this way because this is what gets us evangelizing. This is what gives us living radically. This is what gives us, um, get, this is what gets us out our door doing things for the Lord is thinking bigger than what's right in front of us, thinking bigger than Netflix, thinking bigger than whatever we're going to eat for dinner, thinking bigger than career, bigger than family, bigger than all that, thinking kingdom, kingdom thinking. That's what's going to get us mobilized to do work in this valley. It's thinking bigger than just us, looking outside of our walls, realizing that we are one of many churches in this valley, and there are some phenomenal churches in this valley doing kingdom and gospel work. And we want to partner with them. We want to think outside of ourselves. Think bigger. Takeaway number two. See the reality of the kingdom, okay? Not just the size of the kingdom. See the reality of kingdom. Do you guys understand that the kingdom of God is more real than this world that we live in? I don't mean that this world isn't real. I mean that we live in a world that is twisted and contorted and confusing because it's not the way it was originally meant to be. When you read the scriptures and you understand the kingdom of God, you're looking at reality, something that is so much more real than anything you could possibly imagine. Heaven is not some ethereal idea. Jesus didn't come declaring the kingdom like some kind of ideology or some kind of philosophy like Plato or one of these guys. He didn't come saying, hey, I got this great idea. We should all just love each other. Wouldn't that be awesome? He came declaring a real thing, a real reality, and that is that God is going to at one point rule in totality all creation and unite heaven and earth and bring everything together into one kingdom. That is as real as it gets, and if you don't believe that, you're never going to live in a way that reflects that it's real. The level that you actually believe that that's real will, will directly affect the way that you live your life. Why am I not evangelizing? You probably don't think the kingdom of God is that real. Why am I constantly, constantly falling back into the same sin over and over again? You probably aren't really living in that much of a reality of the kingdom of God. When we really think something is real, we really act on it. Don't we? 
I mean, I've used this before, but if we thought North Korea was dropping a nuclear bomb right now on our head, you better believe we would act. We would get in a bomb shelter and we'd shoot back, okay? That would happen if you really believed it happened. If you really believe this kingdom of God thing is real, it's going to change you. It's going to affect the way that you live. And number three, see how the kingdom expands. So not only that, how the kingdom not only the size of the kingdom, not only the reality of the kingdom, but I want you to see how the kingdom expands. One of the things that I've noticed as I was reading all of these passages about the kingdom of God is the way that it expands. Um, Jesus didn't do it the way that everybody thought. We know that, right? They thought it was going to be like, bam, there's the kingdom. Here it is, established. Jesus would come and rule and reign. That's not how Jesus did it. He said the kingdom of God is actually a lot more like, you remember, um, leaven. It's like leaven. You put it in the bread and you knead it, and as you're kneading it, the, the bread starts to expand until it, it sort of takes over uh, the whole of the bread. He said it's like a, a seed. And when Jesus, by the way, when Jesus said that the kingdom was like a seed, he was drawing back on all kinds of Old Testament language. All kinds of Old Testament language. But he said the kingdom of heaven is like the seed. It's this tiny little thing. And you put it in the ground, and it slowly begins to bloom and begins to grow until it actually is going to consume the entire earth, which is incredible to think about. And my point in saying that is that do not despise the day of small things. The kingdom of God is almost, almost always manifest in the smallest of things. God chose to become a baby rather than to come in like um, one of the great Roman kings and set up shop. He chose to start as a small thing and to grow, and he chose to use something small like his death, well, it seems small, like his death, and allow that to grow, um, and it did, and it has, and I don't want you to, I don't want you to lose this, okay? The, the church has grown. You guys realize that this little rabble of Jewish um, peasants from Galilee uh, ended up blooming into a religion that literally took over the Roman Empire? <laughs> Do you get that? Do you realize that there are more Christians on the face of the earth than any other religion? Do you realize that, that right now in China, they are seeing exponential growth? In 2006, there was 200, or in, in 2006, there was 110 million Christians in China. In 2018, 234 million Christians. Do the math. They went from 110 million to 234 million in 12 years. You say, oh, it just doesn't feel like a lot of people are getting saved in America. Well, it's because we got way too many stinking idols. The gospel is blowing up in these poor countries, blowing up where people are not so distracted by their physical things that they can't see the reality of the kingdom of God. And we are part of that. We are part of that. I love that we're no longer just this non-denominational church. We're linked to a church planning network that's planning churches because it makes us feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves, part of this kingdom thing that's expanding. And we get to celebrate it. I'm just, I'm just glad I'm part of it. Amen? Let's stand. Sorry, I kept you a little bit long. Father, we just thank you tonight uh, for this concept that you came and taught us about. Well, we didn't make this up. Jesus, we didn't, we didn't write this. Uh, Jesus, you came declaring this thing called the kingdom of God. And I just thank you that we get to be part of it. And I pray that we'd spend our lives just chasing after the reality of it. I pray that we would live as though it truly is real when we talk to our neighbors and our coworkers and when we have opportunities to share the gospel, Lord, that the reality of this kingdom would just, would just burst out of us, Lord, and that you would bring many sons to glory through this church and that you would bring much fruit, Lord. The harvest is truly there, God. 
use heritage, God. Every one of us in this room, I know we desire to see more. We desire for more power to come in this church and in this valley, more of your reign, more of your kingship, more of your rule, more of your presence, God. We just desire more of your kingdom. And as you taught us to pray, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come here as it is in heaven. Lord, may it come through us. May we be the manifestation of that kingdom. May people see it in the way we love each other. Father, we thank you for your grace and your patience with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good evening.